Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Laura Portwood-Stacer, who's here to share with us 10 items for your manuscript revision checklist. Welcome back to the show, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to work through the 10 most common um, struggles people have with their manuscript and how they can make a revision checklist to get that sorted out. But before we dive into that, Will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah, so I am a freelance developmental editor. I own my own editorial business. Um, So I've been working with scholarly authors for the past eight years, helping them get their manuscripts ready to submit to publishers and then revise those manuscripts um, after peer review to get them ready for publication. And these days, most of my work is in my group programs, um, helping people with book proposals. Um, but I, you know, for many of the last eight years, I've been working on book manuscripts um, and sort of seeing what problems tend to pop up again and again as people are revising, you know, whether it's a first draft or a dissertation that they're revising into a book. Um, so, so yeah, so that's what I thought we could talk about today. And you recently posted on social media sort of a top 10 list of what you see happening in people's manuscripts, the struggles that they have, really normalizing that these things happen when you're working on your manuscript and you've compiled it into a top 10 list. So um, number 10, working from reverse order, is that chapters lack clear internal structure. So how how will people know that they're having trouble with their internal structure and what should they do about it? Yeah. So, so I get, I'll back up just for a second um, and say, um, you know, like you said, these are issues that so many people struggle with. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to call them mistakes um, because they're really part of the writing process. You know, when you write your first draft or you write your dissertation, you're like getting those thoughts on the page for yourself and then there is some expected revision that will happen, you know, whether you do that with a developmental editor, someone like me, um, or you do that on your own or with a peer writing group. Um, and these these issues that come up or these problems come up for everybody. It's, it's not just people who are revising dissertations or people who have never written a book before. I've worked with people at all career stages. So I've seen these things pop up again and again. Um, so that's why I have this sort of top 10 list. Um, but but yeah, to get to item number 10, so this was sort of maybe the 10th most frequent thing that came up across the manuscripts that I worked with, um, is that, you know, a chapter has to be its sort of own unit within a book. But within a chapter, um, authors often just kind of throw everything that has to do with the topic of that chapter in the draft. And it's like, okay, it's in there. Um, but something I try to help authors do is think about the experience of the reader. How are they going to process all that information that is sort of related to this topic? And how are they going to build that information as evidence into an argument um, that the reader, you know, will be able to absorb? And so one, you know, pretty easy, straightforward way to give a chapter some structure and build the argument is to give it um, sections, right? So not 30 pages of sort of unbroken text, but say, okay, in in these five pages, I want to make this point. I need to make that point before I can make the next point, which is going to be the next six pages. Um, And so often what I'm doing as an editor is figuring out, okay, where would we put a break? Where are we turning to a new idea or a new line of argument? Let's put a section heading there and let's use that section heading to sort of clue in the reader to what is coming next and how this chapter is building. So it's it's not necessarily something that's difficult to do, but it's just something you kind of have to do after the words are on the page is go in and give a structure to it. And when you do that, 
you'll have a better sense of every whether or not every part of it is actually contributing to that chapter, or maybe it needs to go in another chapter, or maybe it's turned out not to be necessary at all. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're like, okay, this, these, this run of four pages seems to be making this point. And I, now I don't remember why that point, you know, belongs in this chapter. How does it support the argument in this chapter? So then that can help you um, figure out what to do with it. Does it stay here? Does it get a different frame? Does it move somewhere else in the manuscript or does it get taken out altogether? And you suggest that between three and five section headings is a good number. One question that people have is, how will I know if my chapter is too long? And it might be that if you have more than five different things contributing to your argument in one chapter, it's going on a bit long. Right. Yeah. I think that's sort of like a guideline just based on all the manuscripts I've seen. Um, but it's not prescriptive. You know, if, if you have a coherent argument and it takes six sort of building blocks to make it, that's fine. Um, but I would say in the vast majority of chapters that I worked on, three to five pieces is all that really is needed. And you were speaking a minute ago about how, how normal this is. When you work in developmental editing and you let people know that their chapter is lacking internal structure, are they surprised or do people kind of intuitively know like something's wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, often when people are seeking a developmental editor, they know they need some kind of support. Um, and it is often a structural issue um, because we're, as you know, as scholars, we're not necessarily trained in the craft of writing. Um, we're much more trained in producing the ideas and the, you know, the research and the methods um, and a bit less on presenting it to a reader in an elegant way. So, so yeah, I mean, I would say it's even at the front end when someone is seeking someone like me out, um, they know that they have the ideas there, but they're just not sure it's coming across on the page. And having a checklist like this one, where we're going to go through the 10 most common things people want to look at before they submit their manuscript, it can help you take a step back and look at your work through different eyes, particularly if you can't afford a developmental editor or one's not available through university funding to help you. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I wanted to share these sort of 10 tips because they're almost, yeah, like a checklist that you could then go through your manuscript draft and say, oh yeah, I am struggling with that. Could I use this sort of quick fix to fix it? You know, not everything will be well, a solution will immediately present itself, but I'm hoping that these 10 items will give people a jump start to edit their own work. Number nine on the list is primary source material is presented without interpretation or argument. I think we've all done that. Yes. Um, can you walk us through maybe why that's a bad habit? Yeah. So, I mean, often we find like a quotation or a piece of our, our research that seems to make the point very well that we want to make. Um, so we, you know, slap it in there and then it's like, well, I, this paragraph is long enough. I'm going to move on to the next thing. Um, and, and so the, the kind of, we're kind of hoping we can get away with the, the material speaking for itself. Um, but often it doesn't, you know, it makes sense in our head because we're the person who is sort of concocting this, um, argument and narrative. Um, but the reader won't necessarily know why this quotation makes sense, why you're including it at this point, you know, why this anecdote, um, belongs in the narrative of the book here. So this is something I often do, you know, as I'm going through a manuscript is I'll just, you know, highlight the quotation and say, can you add one sentence after this that restates it in your own words or tells the reader, you know, what, what's the really important thing they should be interpreting about this quotation. Because that's part of your job as the scholar is to do that interpretation. You know, otherwise you're, you know, more of a transcriber or something. Um, so you want your own um, take to kind of come through. And you can do that usually very simply with not too much writing. It's not like you need to go on for pages, um, but just a little kind of give a takeaway for each piece. And it can be hard because if we find a quote that we love and we love enough to put it in a block quote or to, to include it at all, I think we feel like I can't say it any better than that. Right. You know, that's why we're using this quote or it's, it's clear what it's about. And it, it can be hard to take that step back and think, oh, wait, I need to incorporate this book as a whole. I need to make sure everything 
keeps moving through my points. So it's clear for my reader when we feel like, but the quote was clear. Right. Yeah. So, so it can be helpful to think about, well, why was it clear to you? Just explain that. Um, and then that'll make it not only clear to the reader, but also, uh, you know, bring it back to your contribution, which is why they're there. They want to read what you have to say, not necessarily all those people you want to quote. It's when, when people are passionate about something, I often say to them, well, the fact that you love it is what makes other people love it too. If you can take that sentence or two to explain why you cared about this right. quote, the reader will pretty automatically say, oh, right. Okay. Right. <laughs> it's not usually a hard sell if you care enough about something to share it, to just go ahead and say, this is why I care about it. This is why I'm sharing it and, and get everybody to sort of nod along. Like, all oh, right, of course. Right. Number eight is key concepts aren't defined and aren't pulled through the analysis across the text. I think we're all guilty of that in some way or another as well. Um, can you help us deal with that hurdle? Yeah, yeah. So, so a lot of times, what I see is uh, maybe people have written their manuscript and then then they go back and write the introduction and and with all that hindsight of having written the draft of the manuscript, they kind of have come to some clarity about the big ideas that are going to be important in this text, which is really good um, to get to that point because you don't, no one starts out at that point. Um, but then what you need to do is, you know, after you've introduced those big ideas in the introduction, make sure you're kind of calling back to them as you're going through the whole manuscript. Um, you kind of have to hold the reader's hand just a little bit to say, hey, this thing we're talking about in chapter three, remember that idea I brought up in the introduction? This is that, like now we're seeing it in play um, or we're seeing it applied in this new context. So it's really just a matter of sort of using the same terms throughout all of the body chapters of the book um, and then bringing it back to that overall point you wanted to make um, so that the reader, you don't have to repeat yourself, but just help the reader understand um, that there really is a coherent narrative going on here. And we sometimes assume that our reader is holding all of the information in their head right along right. with the book. And by the time you're two chapters later, even if you're paying attention and taking notes, you may have to flip back through your notes and be like, wait, what did this term mean? Right. And if we can help our reader, we can keep them going with the pace of the book. Yeah. I mean, so much of, what I do as an editor is kind of thinking about the realities of how people actually read scholarly work. You know, there is the idealistic idea that people will read your entire manuscript front to back um, and really like pick up on all the nuances of what you are arguing and all the different directions your argument went. But that's not how I tend to read, you know, a scholarly book. I think a lot of people are kind of fitting in their reading between other things. They're picking up reading, you know, 10 pages here and there. Um, so, so understanding that that is probably the experience your reader is going to have, you can just give them a little couple, you know, footholds to kind of regain their, um, you know, understanding of where they are in the story that you've been trying to tell. And some great mentor texts for that can sometimes be pop culture books that you find at the library, that they're really reader friendly. Some of those tools that make things reader friendly do cross over into academic writing if we can make use of them. Yeah, for sure. Number seven is arguments and theoretical points are left abstract. How do we fix that? Yeah. So this is another one that kind of comes from what I said before about, you know, your first draft is sort of you getting your thoughts on the page or working out what your thoughts even are through that process of writing. Um, and sometimes it can be a real struggle to kind of figure out, you know, this kind of theoretical argument or this, you know, highly abstract point. So we feel like, okay, once, once we've put it into words, we've done the work. Um, but we won't necessarily be clearly communicating that idea to our audience yet. And especially if it's very complex, they, people just like hearing a story that illustrates something or even a quick, you know, one or two sentence example that says, okay, here's the complex idea I just threw at you. And here's what it looks like. So, so you can recognize it. It's something that you can relate to from your own experience or your own research. If you're also a scholar, um, 
So that's another thing I really commonly do when I'm editing a manuscript is just, you know, put a little comment that says, can you add an example here? Can you tell a story here from your research? Um, so, you know, if you as the author can do that, kind of go through and think, you know, where might I be able to fill out this explanation? Um, that can be really helpful. We really do connect well with stories. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think, I think, you know, in, um, you know, nonfiction, you know, not necessarily scholarship, but, you know, like you were talking about sort of more popular nonfiction, um, it's often very story driven with like these like vivid characters and, or someone's life story or their own experiences. And I don't think you have to go quite that far in a scholarly book. Um, it doesn't need to be like, oh, we're sitting around the campfire and telling a compelling, you know, story like that. Um, but it's more just like making it concrete, um, introducing, you know, a real person or a real event or, or a real object that um, people can connect to. It doesn't have to be a really involved thing. You know, you don't have to suddenly become like the best, you know, journalistic writer or something. You just have to humanize it. Yeah. And keep those thematic through lines going so that people can retain the, the key terms and things don't get too abstract. Yeah. So something that kind of reminds me, something I'll often say, you know, to an author is, oh, could you, you know, bring back that person from the introduction that you kind of started with? Could we hear what happened to them at this point in your, you know, research narrative? Or um, so you can kind of return to similar examples and that can be a way to keep those through lines going and then also keep the reader sort of remembering where they've been with you and where they're going with you. Number six will not be a surprise to listeners, I don't think, which is that everyone struggles with introductions and conclusions. Yes, they do. Yes. <laughs> do you want to take us through uh, what to do about introductions and then take conclusions as a separate thing? Sure. Yeah. And I have more thoughts on introductions than conclusions, probably. Um, but yeah, you know, introductions are hard because again, introductions are maybe the most like writerly part of the scholarly um, book, you know, the, the empirical chapters or the analysis, you know, that again is building on something you have been trained to do um, and probably have more practice doing like with seminar papers and stuff. An introduction chapter, like a whole chapter that sets up a book is often something people have not done before. Um, you know, particularly if they're a first time book author. Um, so you know, what I found after working with, you know, many, many authors on their manuscripts is that the introduction can be pretty formulaic. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, and they often have sort of a handful of key elements that are useful to include. So I encourage people to start with an opening anecdote, um, or, you know, just a little hook, something that sort of encapsulates the point you want to make with this book. And again, a story can be good, a real person or something that we can introduce the reader to. And then that doesn't need to be long and it can very quickly lead into what is that main point? What is that main thesis um, that this book is going to teach the reader? Um, and then, you know, explain to the reader why that matters, get some stakes in there so that they have a reason to keep reading this book. And then, you know, the, the, bulk of the introduction chapter is often kind of setting up the background that a reader would need um, to then, you know, absorb your contribution in the, the body chapters. So this may be a little bit of conceptual background, uh, which is not the same as a literature review. It's more about laying out the ideas that underpin your work. And you might be citing other people, you know, who have come before you and who have um, also engaged with similar ideas or helped your thinking. Um, but it's not, you know, just a summary of the previous literature. It's really just setting up the ideas for your reader of your book. Um, and then you may also want to include some background on your research site um, or the objects that you analyze, the people that you talk to, um, to bring everyone up to speed. Because most people reading your book are not going to be experts in that very specific um, site or topic. Um, they may be just kind of from your field um, or sort of loosely interested. So you want to give them any background information they would need. And that can just be a few pages as well. 
And then, you know, many people often talk about their research methods, which again, does not need to be a whole long thing. It's not a whole chapter like it would be in a dissertation. This can be often done in one, two, maybe three pages. Um, Just, you know, helping your reader understand how you got the evidence that you're going to be presenting in this book. And then some people like to give a little outline of the chapters that are going to come. Um, That's sort of optional. Some authors and editors like that. Some don't. Um, So that's really kind of discretionary. Um, And then I think, you know, some kind of closing a one paragraph sort of tying up the introduction, giving a jumping off point to make the reader want to turn to chapter one that would come after the intro. Um, Conclusions, I'm a little hazier on because um, different people want to do different things with their conclusions. You know, some people want to sort of make, you know, prescriptive suggestions, like, okay, based on this research that I've done, here's the action I think people should take. Um, so that that's valid. Some people kind of just want to, you know, come um, sort of historically up to speed. So if their work has been more set in the past, um, the conclusion might be where they're saying, and this is why this connects to our present day. Um, you know, so this is all, there's different ways to approach a conclusion. Um, but I, maybe it would just help to know that almost everybody struggles with it. Um, and you know, it's, it's hard to know if there's a perfect way to end something as big as a book. Um, and also this is something that I've seen, um, can change a lot over the revisions. Um, so especially if you're kind of that early stage of getting your manuscript ready for first submission to a publisher or something, I I think there's often room to say, I'm not quite sure how this ends yet. You know, let's get some input from the peer reviewers or something. Um, So it doesn't need to be sort of perfectly wrapped up with a bow, you know, in that sort of initial submission phase. A a lot of scholars feel like their introduction is the most frustrating part to write or that they get stuck because they want to start writing their manuscript at the beginning with the introduction. Is there value to looking at the introduction when you're partway through or even at the end, because by that time you know what you want to say and you can write an introduction that sets up what your manuscript kind of took off and did. Yeah. I mean, I think it's extremely common um, for people to really write two introductions. You write the one that's for you, that helps you set up your thinking and kind of lay out your intentions for the book. Then you write the book. Then you write the one that's for your publisher and your reader. Um, And that might look a lot different from that first one. So while that might seem kind of annoying, I go, I've got to write this thing twice. It's twice as much work. Hopefully it takes the pressure off that first version because the first version can be very like provisional um, and just kind of mapping things out for yourself. And then, and then, yeah, coming back through and writing the more polished version that you you have the benefit of having um, seen everything that comes after. So that's another thing that I think scholarly authors often um, need to be reassured about is that you can give it away in the intro. And again, that goes back to the way people experience scholarly writing as readers. Oftentimes they are only reading the intro or they're reading the intro before they're deciding whether they want to read the rest of the book or assign any chapters from the book to their students. Um, So the intro can't be, um, you know, suspenseful or like, holding something back, hoping to entice people to read, it, it really needs to like not waste their time and say, this is what you're going to get from this book. Um, I hope you want to read the rest of it. But if not, you at least understand what idea I've contributed here. And you know, maybe you'll cite me, even if you didn't read the whole book. That It does feel counterintuitive um, to, to do that um, because I think so many people are trained, you know, about the idea of a spoiler alert right. or that you don't, you don't read the last chapter of a, of a mystery novel right. before you start it, that certain things are almost cheating or they're um, selling short the work itself. Like if I tell you this, then you won't want to read the whole thing. Right. But what you're saying is we need to be mindful that there's a number of ways that readers are going to approach the finished product. Right. And we have to write in a way that works for the reader. Right. And, th- and that works for you. That gets you what you wanted out of this, this 
whole project of writing a book? Like, did you, what is most important to you? You know, if you're a very, um, I don't know, literary person, maybe the most important thing to you is the way people experience your words and, you know, your narrative and, and then uh, fine. You know, that maybe that's one way to write a book. I think a lot of scholars are really more important, more interested in getting their ideas out there having people find their ideas useful, using them, citing them, telling other people about them, teaching them. Um, and, and that is not necessarily, you won't achieve that as effectively by doing the exact same things as you would if your most important goal was that they had a, like a literary experience of your book. Does that make sense? It, it does. And if we want people to be able to really understand the point of the journey they're going to go on in this book. The only person who can really make that clear for them, who can offer them a very clear roadmap of where they're going to start and where they're going to end up is the author and the place to put it is the introduction. Right. Yeah. And, you know, every book doesn't have to be the same. If you don't want to, you know, approach your book like that, that's fine. But understand that there might be some trade-offs in the way the book lands and the people that it ends up appealing to. Number five is the purpose gets lost because the writer doesn't explain it to the reader or use structure to support it. We just touched on that a bit, um, but let's dig in a little deeper. You suggest one way to deal with that is by creating a reverse outline. Can we make sure people know what a reverse outline is and how that can help us um, make sure the purpose doesn't get lost? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's a lot of different ways people use this technique, um, and I don't, I don't know exactly who should be credited with inventing it, if anyone. Um, but what I often do when I'm looking at a manuscript and I'm kind of feeling like, ah, oh, I don't know where this is going, or I'm reading, you know, this ten-page passage that seems like a tangent. I'm not sure why I'm reading it. Um, I'll do, you know, some version of a reverse outline, which is basically. Um, figuring out what the topic of each section, each passage, each paragraph even um, is supposed to be or what the the writer thinks it is. Um, And then writing those out maybe separately from the manuscript itself. And then that allows me to see an outline that maybe is the outline the author had in mind when they started writing, or or maybe they didn't have anything in mind. They just were kind of writing. Um, And then I can, it it helps um, make the, manuscript a little more modular and I can see, okay, can I move this piece? Would it make more sense to tell the reader this idea at the beginning of this chapter? Um, or, okay, I've got, a, I've got a whole sequence here of, of points and they all make sense, but there's one right in the middle that, wow, it just seems to come out of nowhere. Then I can move that. It, I would th- say like, okay, this whole passage needs to go somewhere else. Um, and so, so making those moves you know, diagnosing your text using the reverse outline and then making the moves. That's um, using structure to support the the argument you want to make and the story you want to tell, like the larger story you want to tell from your research. Um, And then, and then, yeah, like we had just been talking about, you know, you also don't want to make it a surprise to the reader or make them guess at why things belong where they belong. Um, So using things like topic sentences, um, you know, when you make that reverse outline and you identify the purpose or the point of each paragraph, make sure that's stated somewhere in that paragraph, ideally at the beginning, um, to sort of introduce the reader to the idea so they can follow along with then the evidence you're using to support the idea and the analysis and the reasoning you're bringing to the table. Chapter uh, number four is chapters don't seem to have self-contained arguments or purposes, making the book feel disorganized or meandering. Or chapters have too many arguments packed in. Can we start with they don't have self-contained arguments before we go on to too many arguments? Yeah. So this kind of goes back to what I was saying, you know, at the very beginning of our conversation, Um, you know, within a book, you know, there's a, there's a formulaic structure to a book, right? It's made up of component chapters and each of those chapters, um, should stand alone to an extent. Of course, you want people to read the whole book and you wouldn't be writing a book if you didn't have, you know, many chapters worth of things to say. But, um, you know, each chapter is kind of a logical unit on its own. And so you often want it to have its own purpose, ideally its own argument to make, you know, something original you are bringing to your topic. Um, And what 
often happens is is people are approaching the chapters more topically, um, which is fine. You know, often chapters do have a distinct topic, but then you're not going to say everything you ever wanted to say or ever learned or discovered about that topic. You want to think about, well, what helps this chapter make its own point? The point I want to make about that chapter's topic. And then how does that all serve the overall book? You know, I have a main core argument that I want to make. And so you want to think about, you know, how is, how is each chapter supporting that overall structure? Um, so yeah, so that is often, um, something that is not immediately apparent after you've written your first draft, but then, you know, as you're revising, going through your, your second or your later draft, think about, well, why is this chapter here? What do I want a reader to really understand? Um, and then, you know, make sure that that is stated and then pulled through that chapter. It can be painful to have to cut out words, to have to cut out whole chunks of things. Yeah. Um, if we, cared enough about it to, to spend all that time typing it out into the manuscript, we're probably going to have some pain in cutting it out. Yeah. Do you give advice about having a separate folder they can shove that stuff in? So they're not deleting it forever. They're putting it in a file where it can be repurposed later. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like that can help with the emotional aspect of it. You know, I often, you know, when I realize things need to be cut, I'll put them in some other file. And then I inevitably forget to look at that file ever again. <laughs> but at the moment, it feels like, okay, I could go look at this. I could find it. Um, I could use it for something else. And I try to make people aware, you know, because I'm really, um, I'm, I consider myself kind of publishing oriented. I'm helping people achieve their publishing goals. Um, and so I'll try to help people understand, well, there are many different forums in which you're going to present the ideas of your book when it comes out. Um, not just the book itself. You know, you'll probably be giving talks. You might be invited on a podcast. You might be pitching um, an essay to a newspaper or a magazine or something. So I might say, well, this story might be good to hold back for that if you can make a stronger connection um, to the the argument you're making in the book. Um, or, or maybe you've got a whole separate journal article in this manuscript that you could that could get you another CV line and it doesn't take away from your book to remove it. So why don't we do that? Um, so, so just because you take something out of that book manuscript doesn't mean it's gone forever. doesn't mean you can't return to it. Um, so I, hopefully that helps um, as people revise and make those tough decisions. Number three is book and chapter titles. Don't clue the reader in to the overall points the writer wants to make. It seems like that's an obvious thing, but book and title chapters can be really hard to think of, and we can be used to the very jargony way we've had to write our paper titles for college or grad school or our conference presentation abstracts, and boiling things down to a very coherent, this is what it's about, um, can seem a little bit difficult. Yeah. So, so I'll say it's not, I don't know if I have like a magic, uh, method to coming up with book and chapter titles. You know, sometimes it is just finding a friend or an editor or somebody who's better at it than you, who can help you, um, kind of distill out the thing you want, um, people to know, um, when they're encountering the chapter. Um, but I do think, you know, often again, thinking about what publishers are looking for, you know, they're looking for the, the clearest, indication of the content of the chapter and what the reader will get from reading the chapter or the book as a whole. Um, and that's often why they're really focused on keywords and search engine optimization and things like that. Um, so, so to some extent, you know, the, the way you title a conference paper, um, can transfer over here because it's a similar thing. You know, when you title the conference paper, you're hoping, people will see it in the program and want to come see the talk, right? The, the title works as this sort of invitation to come to talk, the talk and find out more. Um, and you might be especially hoping, you know, an editor at a publisher will see it and want to come hear about your work and ask you if you have a book that you're working on. So I think that can work just as well for book titles um, and chapters of books, because those then get used um, essentially to market the book. That's what a lot of potential readers will see before they see anything else. So 
I would say don't worry about being like so clever or poetic. Get a serviceable title down um, that tells the reader what they can expect when they encounter the content of this chapter. Um, and then, you know, as you go through the publishing process, you'll have a chance to revise those titles if you think of something better or you get some feedback from reviewers or your editor. Um, but I would say functional and serviceable and clear is the way to go, at least for the first pass. The chapter title is an opportunity to tell the reader what they can expect from that chapter. Can we sort of imagine then that the table of contents functions as an outline for the reader, that they should be able to look at that and get an idea of what each section of the book is going to basically tell them? Definitely. Um, and I think, you know, I work with a lot of um, authors on their book proposals, you know, in my programs. Um, and one of the big components of a book proposal is that table of contents, along with little summaries of each chapter. And the ones that I just think are the most outstanding um, and make me want to read the book are the ones where I could look at that table of contents and understand what this argument is and how it's going to, um, you know, change and complexify as we move through the chapters of the book. Um, so if you can do that, that's great. It's, it can be kind of a high bar to shoot for, but um, something to keep in mind. And you can find mentor texts if if you want to shoot for that high bar or even a middle bar, it pulls some books from the shelf and look at the chapter titles and see if that clearly signals for you what the chapter would be about. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I don't know if this is just uh, me or what, but often I'll read things and be like, oh, I could do better than that. And then, so even if you can't find something that's like the most beautiful example, um, it just might jog your um, you know, motivation to come up with something. It'll either inspire you or irritate right, you. Exactly. <laughs> I think I'm very irritable. I think that's my issue. <laughs> well, we can all do that when we're reading. We can see something as sort of a challenge, like, oh, I, I want to write as well as this person, or I love this. I just feel like they should have made right, it clearer. Right. And then we can have the light bulb moment of, I could make my stuff clearer. Right. <laughs> Number two is the book's overall thesis, the whole reason the writer is writing isn't stated clearly in the text and doesn't appear to be driving the content of the manuscript. That sounds like a biggie. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Cause you know, when I posted this thread on Twitter, somebody was like, well, I guess people aren't learning how to write these days if they can't do that. And I just want to say, you know, to that person, like, I'd like to see your early drafts um, because it's, it's a near universal um, that the authors I work with, um, you know, they, they have an argument, they have a reason they're writing this whole book, but it is definitely one of the hardest things to articulate because you have so much knowledge. You spent years, um, you know, gathering information and making your analyses of, you know, this idea. So to sum it up in like one or two sentences is much easier than it sounds. Um, and it can take years to get there. And it may take help from other people sort of like reflecting it back to you, um, who have, you know, been able to read at a little more of a distance. Um, so that is often, you know, one of the main ways that I help writers is saying, okay, I've read your whole manuscript. And here's the kernel, like, here's the thing I think you're trying to get across. You never said it, but you, you said it implicitly across these, you know, 300 pages or whatever. Um, so so I'm saying that because I don't want people to feel discouraged if they are not at that point yet, um, but that it does just kind of take time. It might take talking to other people. Um, once you get it, then you get it. There's like a light bulb moment and you're like, oh, okay, this is how I explain it. Um, and then, then you want to make sure that you put that in writing early, very early on in the introduction of the book. Um, and then again, you know, make sure you're revisiting it and make sure that every piece um, that you decide to include is pointing back to it and helping the reader grasp and be convinced of that um, thesis that you were trying to make. And being able to articulate it, sometimes scholars, especially, we talk in big, giant paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can help just if you can't afford an editor or you don't have access to one and you can't find a critique group or a um, thought partner group is to meet your friend for coffee, tell them what you want to write a book about and then say to them, 
what do you think I said my book is about? And hear what they think you just shared. And you can gauge from that how close you are to articulating clearly what you're going to do or not. And one thing I've noticed from some of my friends is they're far better at saying back to me in a concise way what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I look at them and say, really, is that what I'm writing about? And they're like, yes. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like (laughs) Getting that step back and hearing from someone else what they think your work is about, particularly if they're someone who knows you and who is a good listener, they may add all this clarity that you've been grasping for. Mm -hmm. For sure. So just for listeners, you may be closer to articulating your thesis than you think. You probably just need someone to talk to you about it. Another thing I found really helpful kind of with my first book, um, which unfortunately I didn't do this until after the book was published, but was teaching the the ideas in it, um, figuring out how am I going to convey to my undergraduates who are, you know, not experts in my dissertation topic, but, um, you know, they're maybe seniors, uh, so they have got some grounding in the field that I was trained in. Um, how am I going to explain to them why this is important and why it's interesting? Um, and, you know, I think if I had done that before I published the manuscript, it might have been a better manuscript. And sometimes the advice when something is really complicated is tell it to me like I'm five. Right. It's find a, an audience way outside who you think is your audience. And how would you explain it to them? And that can help you drill it down. Right. Yeah. And of course, the whole book isn't going to be written for a five-year-old. It's going to be written to people in your field. But being, like you said, being able to kind of drill down and get that driving idea, that's going to be really useful to have. Um, Because a lot of the people who make publication decisions are not experts. Um, They might not even be scholars, although some of them may be scholars in other fields. Um, So... So yeah, being able to explain why this is interesting, why it's important um, in a way that would make sense to an outsider is really important to do. And some of the other advice is that the reviewers at the press who are going to be reading this, the outside reviewers, they're tired. This is an addition to their day job. So if you can make sure your thesis has drilled down the main points, that's really a favor to these people who are tired, who want to like your work, who want to find it in and understand it, but they're exhausted. Right. And it, even beyond like helping them out, you're helping them help you more because if you can tell them what you wanted to get across, then they can tell you, well, it didn't come across here in chapter four. Um, or I think you need to add more evidence to support this if this is what you're really trying to get across. Um, so while it can be sort of scary to get that kind of feedback, it ultimately makes your book better. And it sounds like it's a win-win because if they come back with, this is what your thesis said, but by chapter four, I feel like you have a thesis of X instead of of Y, Mm -hmm. you can make a decision which fork in the road you actually want to go with with your book. Yeah. Yeah. And that's often what I'm doing. You know, when people come to me before the peer review stage, I might say, here's the argument I think, you know, seems to be on the page in this part of the book. But here's this other argument. I think maybe this is where your heart is lying because you seem to be like veering toward it all the time. Um, And then that can help the writer come to some clarity on what they really want the book to be. And then, you know, then do the work of revising to make it support whichever way they decide to go. And sometimes that happens because we're trying to write what we think we're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, where your heart is and what's on the page start going in different directions because you know what you're passionate about and you're trying to do what you think you're supposed to do. Yeah. And and there might be perfectly good reasons to do what you're supposed to do. Um, So I think just being aware that maybe those things are out there and then then you can at least make an informed choice. Which way are you going to go for this book? You know, maybe the heart project is your next book or something. And then number one is the most common thing almost every scholarly author struggles with in the early drafts is devoting a lot of space to reciting the ideas of others without centering their own interpretation, extension, argument, or contribution. Why do we do that? Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this because I say this to almost every author that I work with, even people who are writing their third or fourth book who are, you know, full professors. So it's not just a thing that dissertation writers do, although dissertation writers also do it. And so I was trying to figure out why does everyone have this issue? Um, If they know that this is not how, you know, 
books work. Um, you know, usually like an original book has to be mostly your contribution. And I think it goes back to that idea that when you're writing, you're thinking. Um, and that early draft was for you to think through what you're trying to say and how you're trying to engage with the thinkers that have come before. Um, and so it makes perfect sense that you there would be a lot of words devoted to that um, in your early draft. But then that's where sort of self-editing comes in, which is understanding, well, how much of that does my reader really need to work through? Probably not nearly as much as you did as the, the writer um, arriving at your original idea. So, so what you can then do, you know, as you're self-editing is figure out what are the nuggets that really support the point I want to make? What would a reader really need to know? And what can just go, you know, back in my discard file um, that doesn't need to be now discussed in my manuscript. It was for me, and now we can move on. And a lot of it can just turn into footnotes or citations. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be in the text. You don't need to be in direct conversation with it in the text, but you can cite other scholars who clearly you're resting on their shoulders in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would never want this advice to be taken as, well, you don't owe anyone anything and you don't need to cite any anyone else's ideas. Um, but yeah, but you can do it in a much more um, like seamless way um, so that the credit is given where it is due, but the reader can focus on what they are there to focus on, which is your ideas. That's why they're picked up your book, not the book you cited. And we can be in danger of writing a lit review when we when we do that, because there's so many scholars that we're indebted to. There's so much that we read to become knowledgeable about our field that we can almost write whole passages that are lit reviews. And you want us to remember that the reader is there for our book. Right. Yeah, in most cases. I mean, there might be some settings where a literature review is appropriate, but um, even when it is important to kind of go through the existing literature, it should always come back to the point you're trying to make in this piece that people are reading right now. Um, you know, because it, unless you're writing a textbook or something, your job isn't to acquaint people with what came before. It's to share something new that you want to say now. Um, so, so yeah, so a literature view is, while it can be a requirement of a dissertation to kind of prove that you did the reading basically and understood it um, in a publication, it's almost never that necessary. What are some misconceptions that people have? If, if they're listening to this and they say, oh, no, I have all 10 of those, should they feel discouraged? Should they feel normal? What are, what are some of the misconceptions people have when they find out that they have some structural things they've got to work on before they're ready to submit? Yeah, I mean, I would say they are statistically normal um, because, like I said, these are drawn. I, you know, I literally went through all the editorial letters I've written through for authors who are working on scholarly books. Um, and I coded them, you know, I was trained as a qualitative researcher. So I went through and I sort of coded them for common themes. And so these 10 things are the things that came up the most, um, among the people I work with. Um, so if you are struggling with any or all of these things, I would say that just makes you a typical scholarly writer. Um, and, and know that almost everyone else who has written a book has gone through these things and they've just had to figure out how to um, rectify them or not. I mean, sometimes these things might show up in a published book. Um, so, so this is more about, well, if you really want to push your manuscript, make it the best it can be, make it connect with your readers as effectively as possible and connect with publishers. You know, if you're still trying to find a publisher for your work, um, these can be little and big, you know, ways you can just take the manuscript up a notch. With the checklist of these 10 things, no one's aiming for perfect. They're aiming for polished enough to send off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no book is ever going to be perfect, right? And and perfect is so subjective as well. So um, I also, I don't want these to be like the 10 must do edits you have to make, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive about it. This is just, well, if, if you also think these are an issue in your manuscript or a problem, um, he, here are some ideas for how you could work on it. 
Or if you were wondering if you're ready and you, you don't have other eyes to look at it, you can use this to help you feel more confident to how close to ready that you are. And then at some point you are going to have to send it off. Yes, for sure. And I will say, you know, many of the authors I've worked with have been, um, they've already had their manuscript accepted for publication. So, so and then they want to, you know, take it to that next level. So I don't think you need to have like every one of these things perfectly ironed out before you start talking to a publisher or even before you have the book set out for peer review. You might get um, more positive peer reviews. You know, if you've done all of this work, that can lend sort of an impression that the book is very well thought through um, and that can make peer reviewers, you know, maybe more likely to accept um, everything else about your ideas. Um but it's not necessarily a make or break kind of thing. Like all of this has to be ironed out before you can possibly get a publisher's interest in your project. Which will hopefully help listeners feel much better about where they are in their own work, that it is normal. It happens to everybody. Nobody gets to perfect and editors are used to looking at most of these things that whatever's going on in your manuscript, it's probably gone on in most of the things they've read before. Absolutely. What do you hope listeners take away? Um, I, you know, I guess, I, you know, basically what we just said, I hope people understand that this is, you know, it's normal to feel like you're struggling with your writing and that's part of the work. That's why not everyone can write a book or can publish a book. Um, and it's not that I don't think anyone has the ability, but, um, you know, it's, it's, par- it's partly the sort of emotional, like saying, recognizing, okay, I've got these problems. I'm going to come up with some practical solutions and I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do the best I can. Um, and then I'm going to try to overcome any anxieties I have about it and just show it to other people. And, and hopefully it lands with them and maybe they'll give me some ideas on how to make it better. Um, I know that advice is easier to dispense than necessarily act on. Um, but I don't want this to be 10 excuses not to send your work out or not to try to get it published. I want it to be 10 things you can, you know, spend a few days on um, as you revise, you know, for each item and then, and then put it out there if you can bring yourself to. What gives you hope? Oh, (laughs) Um, that's a big question. Um, I guess when I see an author, um, you know, take, take feedback about their work and, and really take it to heart. And, and then I see the next version, um, or I see them go get that book contract. Um, that just makes me, you know, really, I guess, hopeful in general for, um, knowledge production. Um, and, and, you know, a sense of sort of respect and satisfaction for people who are willing to do the work. It is work. It is hard. Um, so, you know, (laughs) being willing to do it can get you further than all the many people out there who, for whatever reason, aren't willing to do it. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Laura Portwood-Stacer, and giving us your 10 things to put on our checklist as we look at our manuscript before we send it out. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.